So are things all sunny? Here's the CEO and founder of Wealthian. Wealthian.com is the website. Adam Taggart. Are you in a good mood today, Adam? Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. I am in a good mood today. I am because of the weather, but we're off to a good start this year with all three of the indices generally, aren't we? Um, well, absolutely, no doubt we're off to a good start relative to 2022. Um, I think the story here, though, is that this is probably giving us maybe a false sense of security for what's likely to happen later this year. Why do you say that? Well, um, it's kind of a, a tale of uh, two stories here, if you will. Um, you have the markets, which are clearly in rally mode right now and pricing in a soft landing. Uh, they actually seem to uh, believe that the Fed is going to be able to sort of land the economic plane here without creating a recession. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the recent raft of economic macro data, uh, it looks pretty terrible. <laughs> so um, it really is kind of a question of which story uh, do you want to believe? And what's very interesting right now is uh, the head of the Fed, Jerome Powell, is is trying to tell the market not to be as enthusiastic as it is, and the market is just not listening to him. be interesting if he pulls a last-minute switcheroo and makes it 50 basis points, but what is it on the horizon that's troubling you? Well, I think if you look at, uh, gosh, almost any kind of economic data out there, um, it shows a slowing economy. Um, we have, uh, you know, our manufacturing sector uh, declining. Um, we, we can see that the Fed is being successful in destroying demand. Uh, we, we are, even though we still have high inflation, we're seeing the, the CPI come down. We're seeing PCE begin to decline here. We've had negative real wages uh, for workers uh, for the past 20 months straight. Consumer spending is slowing. The savings rate is plummeting. Credit card debt is uh, at a record high. Defaults are spiking. Um, and we have key indicators that have a really good track record of predicting recession, like inverted yield curves and the leading economic uh, indicators um, showing that uh, a recession lies ahead this year. A 2.9% spending growth that was reported earlier this week didn't impress you, huh? Uh, it, it really didn't. And if you look at the trajectory, um, yeah, it is uh, it is headed downwards. So, you know, that that two point nine um, you're talking about the uh, the GDP for Q4. Yeah. Which I understand yeah, was and, largely yeah. fueled by government spending. But I'll take what I can get. Isn't this true, though, that the uh, I'm always <laughs> counterpunching, maybe only with optimism. That's the only tool I got. But I mean, isn't it possible? <laughs> isn't it possible, though, that the the numbers are high, but they are trending in the right direction. I thought that's what we were all leaning into, that interest rates were going down, that inflation inflation was going to come down, and, and the recession isn't going to be as bad. That was the scenario I thought we were largely painting these days. Yeah, I think that's the, again, I think that's the narrative that the market is telling itself and it wants to believe. But, you know, one really important thing is um, the Fed is – going at some point to stop hiking interest rates, right? And you can say, okay, well, that's a good thing, right? Um, but recall where interest rates are, right? Um, you know, the Fed, the Fed funds rate is currently uh, at, uh, you know, four and a quarter, uh, four and a half. Powell has said he wants to take it above five. Yep. Uh, we'll find out, but it looks like he's going to do that. He then, wants to, he then wants to 
pause and hang out there for a good while, ideally in his mind, I think measured in quarters, you know, perhaps even through the rest of the year. Uh, that is an incredibly much higher cost of capital than this economy has been used to be deal has, has been used to dealing with. And we have to remember that there is a, dela- a, a delay, a lag between when the Fed um, pulls a lever policy wise and when we see that fully manifest in the economy. And people go back and forth over how long that is, but it's roughly around nine months or so. So that means we're only beginning now to see the impact of the first rate hikes that the Fed made back in in the first half of of 2022. So we still have the delayed impact of all of those rate hikes that were made to still come and hit the economy. Let me ask you this, though, Adam. This will be my last question. But then how will I notice this? How does my world change this spring, summer, fall? Uh, Prices stay high or I have trouble getting that better job now? What will be the consequences to me? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think prices will be stubborn and coming down, but I, I do think we're hopefully to the worst of the inflation that we've seen. I think you're going to mani- see it manifest in uh, corporate earnings, right? So you're going to see earnings compress. So share prices will be challenged. But more importantly, companies are going to be challenged to maintain their workforces, and they've been holding off as much as they can. But you're already beginning to see in certain sectors a fair amount of, of layoffs Uh, begin to happen, I think we're just in the early innings of that. So you're going to actually see substantial job. This very well could manifest with substantial job losses later this year. Adam Taggart is the CEO and founder of Wealthian.com. Wealth, I-O-N, Wealthian.com. Nice to talk to you, Adam. We appreciate your thoughts today. Oh, pleasure to be on here. Wish I had a more positive story. Uh, We're looking for your truth, and that's the way he sees it. Philip Weiss joins us now, the president of CyFarth at Work. This is an interesting take from you, Philip. You want to talk about classified documents, eh? I certainly do, John. Uh, Good to talk to you. Uh, We've read so many press reports over the last weeks and, frankly, longer uh, regarding classified U.S. documents popping up in the homes, libraries, garages of current and former uh, White House occupants and vice presidents. And that's really shown a bright spotlight uh, on corporate America and its own managers and leaders' propensity and habit to sometimes take documents home. They may not be state secrets, uh, but they could be trade secrets. They could be confidential employee files. And the idea is, I'm going to just take the time. I'm working from home. I've got the weekend. But those documents are certainly ripe for exposure or could even fall in the wrong hand. So it's a it's really an interesting moment in corporate America to take a cue from the political landscape and look at their own practices. Especially considering how many people are working hybrid, right? That's right. Uh, and what's really fascinating, in the last two weeks, we've gotten a number of calls requesting training on how to secure work documents at home. Uh, and it's not just in the house, John. It might be on the train on the way home or the lift on the way back to work. The more people are taking documents from work or working at home, the higher the risk factor. And we actually had a client where uh, saw the uh, kind of the uh, grim results of this habit. An HR leader who was not primarily a work-from-home employee was conducting a workplace investigation of alleged misconduct at the workplace. So she had her files with her at home and left one of the files in the kitchen open for just a few seconds to answer a doorbell. 
she got back, and unbeknownst to her, her teenage son looked at the file on his way to the kitchen, noticed the name of the accused employee who happened to be a schoolmate's parent, and started gossiping at school. That, that resulting gossip turned into a defamation claim and then a settlement. So thinking that the documents are safe in your house is probably uh, wishful thinking in some cases. I'm amazed at times. I'm thinking of some members of the city council, even state lawmakers, for that matter, federal lawmakers, who do have important government documents. And when they have them at their home, it's amazing how disorganized these professional people can be, that things are in a shoebox on the floor or, you know, on the kitchen table. I suppose you hear stories like that, too. Absolutely. And what's really uh, kind of alarming is in the office or in the legislative uh, offices, there's a certain amount of peer pressure when you think about it to keep yourself organized enough that you can respond to issues that you don't look like you've kind of lost control of the, the workflow. At home, no one's watching, and people are sort of nomadic. They float from room to room, yeah. leaving potentially a trail of documents. So people have to look at the home in a very unique way when they work there. It's not the office. It's not the home. It's, it's a work zone that needs to have its own rules and a high degree of self-discipline. Well, I'll ask you for some tips in just a second, but I got to tell you, I'm kind of laughing as you're describing all this. I was going to talk to my son the other day about needing to be more particular about his tax documents, his work documents, mail that he gets. And I thought, well, I'm carrying those things around in a jewel bag right now. And that (laughs) is the truth. And if I lose that jewel bag or pick up the wrong one, or I don't know what I'm going to do with it, I need to get a better system. So for all of us, what are some tips? I mean, how do we do a better job of this? Yeah, so one, one piece is how we think about working at home and really thinking about what is my home office work zone. So I'm dealing with any file that is sensitive, confidential in nature, could embarrass the company if it got out. I've got to make sure I only you look at that document in this work zone, preferably an, an office with a closed door. Uh, working in the kitchen in the family room is a recipe for exposure and disaster. And even when you're working in that space, that designated private zone, you want to set up a set of rules for yourself. We've had clients who make it absolutely uh, essential, incumbent on themselves, to work in what they call the single file mode. Only work one file at a time. So you are not dealing with a stack of papers and a stack of files that could easily fall on the floor or out of your control. Some uh, professionals have already declared their home is in what they call a no-print zone. They will not print anything at home because it will sit in the output tray of the printer when they get distracted and will be read by somebody else within a matter of minutes or hours. So a number of steps can be taken that are really very uh, creative and simple. In fact, taking a cue from the old days, from the fax era, one of our clients uses what he calls the fax cover page. When he's got file documents outside of a folder, he covers them with a white piece of paper. He actually puts his schedule for the day on there, the date. That way, if he gets up for a moment, nothing's exposed. So these simple steps, whether it's no printing, shredding, if that's permissible by your employer, the single file rule, and covering the documents, all that together, plus working in a private area, can make an enormous difference. And one last question about what kinds of things we're talking about here. Um, can you just give me sort of an overview of what 
should be most safeguarded and some stuff it, it's okay to be a little more cavalier with? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important question. A lot of companies have creative teams that work on designs for marketing materials, uh, that work on materials that they're going to be releasing very shortly that do not provide a competitive advantage to another company. That's probably going to be on the safer side. If you're dealing with your corporate expansion plans, uh, a purchase of another company, employee performance issues, an investigation of misconduct, that's going to be on the red side of that line, of that ledger. So you think about, is it potentially going to harm our company's competitive position or our reputation or that of an employee? Those are some core questions. And take a look at your own policies, which lay out what materials you need to protect. So you've got a good template to look at within your policies and some common sense as well. Philip Weiss is the president of SciFarth at Work, SciFarthAtWork.com. Okay, Philip, we'll talk again next week. Thanks for your thoughts. Thanks for having me, John. Dale Buss is a veteran financial journalist and founder and executive director of the Flyover Coalition, flyovercoalition.org's his website. And he's got some things to say today about the automakers. Hey, thanks for joining us, Dale. How are you? Great, John. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, wanted to discuss something that's near and dear to your heart, which is AM radio. And uh, the interesting thing that's developing in the auto industry as uh, electric vehicles begin to take over, and it's going to be a long slog. Last year, they were only 6% of the U.S. market, which was basically a doubling of the year before. But uh, as companies develop EVs, many of them now are leaving out AM radio. And their reason, which I would kind of call an excuse, and I'll explain in a minute, is that the interference from the electric, uh, the electromagnetic field yeah. in the propulsion system interferes with AM radio signals, you know, which can be difficult uh, in terms of clarity anyway, and makes them, you know, renders them kind of inaudible. Um, but what's interesting is, you, you, and, you know, I remember two or three years ago, I drive cars for review because I write about the industry a lot, and I remember being in a Volvo, I think it was a hybrid, maybe an EV, and I'm like, I can't find the AM radio. What's going on here? I kind of dismissed that as a quirk. Like, that's just weird. Maybe I don't know how to do the math screen. But no, what's happening is, you know, starting with Tesla, also Volvo, BMW, uh, other automakers are saying we're going to leave AM radio out. And even the Ford uh, F-150 Lightning, the all-electric version of the nation's best-selling vehicle, which is, you know, heavily owned by people in flyover country, uh, rural areas, uh, you can't get AM radio on the electric version of the F-150. And yet, on the other hand, Hyundai, for example, I talked to them, and they're like, we have no plans to discontinue uh, AM in any of our vehicles. So it's interesting. It's a cost thing. It's a, an engineering thing, but it's not impossible to keep AM radio. And, and given the important role that AM radio has, not only for you, John, but for millions of people in uh Flyover country in the Midwest, you know, kind of historically, traditionally, and operationally, it's, I think it's something of concern because already, you know, we're the least likely people in the country to buy EVs. Uh, oh, really? In the middle of the country. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, by, by a lot. And uh, they're kind of discouraging us, I think, by saying we're going to take away your AM radio. So 
I think that's an interesting development. Uh, by the way, uh, so you can listen to WGN AM radio, if you will, on the app in your EV. Exactly. Which yeah, I, you can is, stream is, it. Right, right. So you, you can hear yeah, Wi-Fi. I, I, this bothers me. I don't like the trend. And I like, I'm interested in what you're going to say next. But remember, if you've got a phone in your car and yeah. if you have an EV, you probably do. You know, just use the app. You can hear us. We come in as clear as FM in your vehicle. Yeah. So that's a nice feature Absolutely. as much as it yeah. is a bug. Uh, keep going, though. So what about this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the story, see, and also, I mean, this is a bipartisan thing, too, because one of the reasons that uh, government officials don't necessarily like AM disappearing in any vehicles is, is because of emergencies. Uh, AM is, you know, heavily dependent on, because it can go so far, basically, in, in emergencies. And so you even have, you have a Democrat, Senator Markey of Massachusetts, saying, in December, he uh, sent a letter to all the automakers in the U.S. saying, you get, explain what your plans are for AM radio. Here's why we're concerned, because uh, we don't necessarily want to eliminate this very important um, network uh, in the case of you know weather disasters or national emergencies. So what I think, though, is to me there's kind of a bit of a devaluation of, of people out here in flyover country. I, I, I think... You know, rural America, AM radio is more important to rural America than it is to the coast. Uh, people, younger consumers and on the coast are more likely to, to stream, you know, to use that WGN app, for example. Um, and so I, just, I, I think, you know, they want to take away our gas stoves. So why not, why not take away <laughs> now, AM now. radio? I don't, don't, I don't think it's that too rabbit much hole. of a stretch. I don't, I don't know. They right. want, do you think they want to take away our gas stoves? Yeah, I, maybe. I mean, it, you know, the, everybody poo-pooed it, but Kim Strauss of the Wall Street Journal did a great piece the other day saying, you know what, they really do want to take him away. Will they get away with it or not? Um, there's there's quite a phalanx of interest, you know, who, who would like to eliminate gas stoves. You know, who really um, wants to see AM radio survive is, uh, you know, uh, I don't mean as a from a programming standpoint, but rather from a sort of in-your-dashboard functional standpoint, and that is long-haul truckers or people exactly. that travel and great I make distances. That point. Because yep, if I you, made that point in a piece. You can get yeah. a million little FM stations to hopscotch you from here to there, but yeah. a lot of them are running syndicated programming. If you listen to WHAS Louisville or WJR Detroit or WGN in Chicago, yeah. and you're driving across country after sundown or, uh, you know, after yeah. sundown, you can hear us all the way to Cleveland. You can hear us for a thousand miles on some days, and that's right. that's that, a nice feature. That yeah, and that was pointed out to me. And uh, Peter Fund did a piece in the Wall Street Journal actually a day or two after mine, and he made a big point of that. You know those those shows that come out at night, the spooky shows about uh, a- aliens and stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean that, those are popular with truckers. But the thing that got me thinking about this was what is arguably the most important cultural and even political phenomenon that AM radio has fostered conservative talk shows. I mean, Rush Limbaugh made his, his audience on hundreds of AM stations across the country. Um, he really changed the course of history. Liberal talk radio really never has, has caught on. I mean, they've got, you know, plenty of, of stuff on TV and all that, but you know, that, that just, I mean, I'm not saying it's going on, but it is kind of curious and, that's why I think it, it deserves a greater look, a yeah. closer look. And, you know, Senator Markey of Massachusetts wants to question it. You know, I'm with him. Well, far be it for me to champion conservative talk radio stations across the country because we're not one of those. We're a, 
I think, pretty neutral AM radio station. But you're yeah. absolutely right. The AM band is filled with conservative talk radio. You th- maybe we can get all of our Republican allies to join us <laughs> in incentivizing well, these guys to yeah. continue to put AM radios in the cars. And it's small AM stations across the country, right, are very important to communities. They're important cogs. Uh, AM is important to to the farm economy, which is also important to WGN. So, uh, and and again, it's not a question of cost and engineering because not all automakers are doing it. So they're making this decision on some other basis. John Williams, I have an EV with no AM radio, and I listen to you in my car on my app or on Alexa. Yeah, that's that's the way to do it. And boy, if nothing else, put a sticker there on the dashboard, uh, Volvo saying BMW, saying, hey, if you want to listen to WGN Radio, here's how you do it. I think a lot of you know that. A lot of us are walking into your vehicle with us on the phone. But um, I, I, I appreciate your concern for what we do here and be interesting to follow this. That's Dale Buss, yep. the veteran financial journalist. Thank you can you. read his stuff at flyovercoalition.org. Okay, Dale, stay well. More business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Chicago-based McDonald's is making plans to grow this year. The company expects to open 1,900 new restaurants in 2023. About 400 of those will be in the U.S., Australia, and several European countries, including Germany, Italy, Spain, and France. The company teased the growth plans as it reported fourth-quarter earnings. It predicts 4% unit growth this year from the new restaurants. McDonald's hasn't increased its domestic store count since 2014. That earnings report shows global sales rose 12.6% in the final months of 2022, surpassing a forecast of 8% growth. More job cuts are coming at Chicago-based Groupon. The company is laying off another 500 employees globally. It's not clear yet how many of those cuts might happen here in Chicago. Groupon previously announced 500 layoffs in an announcement six months ago. It says the cuts are part of a multi-phase restructuring plan. Those cuts lowered Groupon's headcount to 2,750 employees, down from about 6,500 prior to 2020. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Time for the business of food, and Steve Alexander. Yes, and we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Last Wednesday night, the blades and top portion of a wind turbine came crashing down to a farm field in Dodge County, Wisconsin. Similar collapses happen from time to time across the country, and it's becoming a costly problem for the big turbine makers and making matters worse for this green form of energy. Those blades aren't really recyclable. Well, I mean, poorly recyclable, I would say. That's John Dorgan, a chemical engineering and materials science researcher at Michigan State University. He says the problem is the blades are made of fiberglass formed with petroleum-based epoxy, which cannot be reused. So the blades that crash or just wear out are usually buried in landfills. Not very green. Dorgan came up with a better idea, using recyclable thermoplastics, which come from corn, to make the blades, and then when they wear out... We can really have all kinds of -of end-of-life options. The simplest one is grind up the wind turbine, uh, add some more plastic to it, and now you have a, a material that can be can be shaped. You can do all sorts of things. Household appliances or computer housings or bumpers on cars. And another process will turn the former wind turbine blades into plexiglass and many things like taillights, even countertops. But wait, there's more. Continuing the recycling process can result in... Baby diapers. And... Gummy bear candies. So, bottom line, by using the Michigan State formula... 
for building the fully recyclable turbine blades. We can recover two different types of polymers, one which is plexiglass, uh, the other which is a super absorbency for diapers. And then finally, uh, we can recover a food-grade material. And a bonus to the turbine makers, these are cheaper than the petroleum-based ones out there now. Do you ever wonder how these men and women with big brains come up with this kind of stuff? I think there's a famous quote from Thomas Edison. How, how, do, you, how do you have so many good ideas? He said, well, I just have a lot of ideas. So <laughs> I think I'm in the same situation. Most of them are kind of, you know, a little bit harebrained. But every now and then, you know, they work out. John Dorgan, a researcher at Michigan State, trying to help make green energy even greener. Greener. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. This is a good idea. Let's talk to Margaret Hall, CEO and co-founder of Green Light Fund Chicago. This is new and this is, I hope, going to be a big success. Margaret, you're on WGN. Hi. Hi, John. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. You've marshaled a who's who of philanthropists and uh, well-connected people in the Chicago area to do what? What's the Green Light Fund? Yes. Yeah, we've had an amazing welcome and an amazing group of supporters in Chicago. Greenlight Fund is a national nonprofit with a very, very local focus that partners with communities to create opportunities for inclusive prosperity. So we're particularly focused on individuals and families who experience poverty and navigate, navigate it every day and are facing the greatest barriers to economic mobility, often because the communities they live in have a history of disinvestment and the racial inequities that we know exist in our, in our cities. So we're nationally focused, but we're coming to Chicago. I mean, we're national, but we're coming to Chicago. We'll be very, very locally focused there. What do you mean coming to Chicago? You're a digital platform. So what do you, how do you come to Chicago? Well, we, we actually, um, though we are national, we work very closely in our communities, hire local leaders for our community. So we just publicly launched Greenlight Chicago, meaning we're in the process of hiring a local executive director from Chicago with roots in the community, because everything we do is very locally driven. So what that, that executive director will do in Chicago is engage a group of local community members to form a selection advisory council. That's going to include Chicago business leaders, nonprofits, philanthropic organizations, private sector folks, residents who experience poverty themselves, and that council will work with the Chicago executive director to run a process. And so that process is community-driven by Chicago that starts by assessing the local landscape to understand where there are unmet needs that matter the most to the re- to residents who are experiencing poverty. Once those needs are established, Greenlight, the Greenlight Executive Director, will work with our team nationally and with peers across the country to identify really best-in-class nonprofit solutions that are addressing those needs and have a strong track record of not only addressing them, but getting results, substantiated results that are measurable, that are backed by data, backed by evaluation. So when we find, so when we establish the need in the community and then find that solution, we help it come into the community to get rooted in the community and start um, running its program and getting the results we've seen in other places. So, so, so while we are national, everything that happens, uh, everything that we do is driven locally by local leadership and local participation by, by community leaders and community members. And it's that group that gave you $6 million to start in Chicago? 
Well, the group that gave us $6 million was over 100 local philanthropic investors, including many, many companies, many business people, many institutions like the United Way of Metro Chicago, the University of Chicago, Allstate, um, uh, the Obama Foundation, Mackenzie Scott, uh, Mark um, Sullivan. Exactly. I've got the list here. That's exactly. what I was referring to. So you have this pool of money relatively locally generated. $6 million yeah. is a lot, but as ambitious as you sound, it's not a lot. I mean, give me an example of some change you think you could affect. Absolutely. So so um, you're right. In the whole scheme of things, it's not a lot, but the way that we use it is highly leveraged. And, and I can give you some examples. Um, in our other cities, um, we have run processes that start out by identifying recently in, in Atlanta, for instance, identifying a need for, um, for, te- for greater teachers, needing more teachers, mm-hmm. and for greater diversity among the teaching course, because that's so important for students to identify with teachers for their own success, for their own academic success, and research shows that. So we looked around the country, found an organization called Leading Men Fellows, um, and brought that into Atlanta in partnership with the school district and with other early education organizations. What they do is run a literacy program in early education classrooms delivered by young men of color who are recruited and trained to be very effective um, literacy teachers and mentors and with results showing that these children are better ready to learn to read and more proficient at reading by third grade. In addition to that, they are, um, these young men are set up so that they are entering the teaching profession and, and the children are getting teachers, not just in those classrooms, but as these young men enter the teaching profession, who look more like them. We have oh, I think that's so, so smart idea. We need, we need more yep. male teachers. We need more black male teachers, especially in front of young kids, black and white. I, I just have a few seconds left, Margaret. What do you yep. want our audience to know or do? Is, do you want us to donate money, or do you want us to tell you, hey, here's an identifiable need? I would say visit greenlightfund.org and sign up to get communications from us about Chicago so you can stay in touch with what we're doing. We will need um, we will we will need help finding a local executive director. We will need help navigating the community and meeting folks in the community could, who can help point us in the right direction to get the needs right and ultimately get the solutions that yeah. Chicago residents. I like the sound of this. I hope it gets bigger and even better. Margaret Hall is the CEO of the Greenlight Fund Chicago, greenlightfund.org. Click on greenlightfund.org. Margaret, let's uh, stay in touch. Let's stay connected on this, okay? Thanks so much, John. In the back of my mind, I've got a couple of charities I want them to give all their money to. I'll bet you do, too.